You're listening to Sweet Talk, all things maple. Welcome back to Sweet Talk. Recording from the Cornell University campus, I'm your host, Aaron Whiteman. Joining me from the E-Line Maple Research Forest is my colleague and co-host, Adam Wild. Hello, Adam. Hello, Aaron. How are things in central New York? Are you having any gypsy moth issues at all this summer? Well, luckily our sugar bush has been spared. Sugar maples don't provide the nutrition gypsy moth caterpillars need to survive and grow. And our sugar bush is primarily sugar maple and other species that gypsy moths don't like. So the impact's been pretty minimal. However, in the nearby areas where the oaks dominate the hillsides, they're completely defoliated. How are things at the E-line? Fortunately, our sugar bush has also escaped infestation this year. Areas like an hour drive northeast and southeast of us have been hit very hard this year, even in heavier maple forests without oaks. Once the gypsy moss ran out of food on other desirable species, they started feeding on the maples. Some maple producers in the North Country actually went out and sprayed in the spring, and that was effective for them. So just as a reminder for sugar makers, it's important for maple producers to survey their sugar bush for those egg masses this fall and determine whether they should plan to spray the natural bacteria in the spring. It's also important to, to get out there and observe your trees right now and see if they have refoliated. Yeah, that's right. Healthy trees should refoliate. But if a maple was defoliated and has not refoliated, you probably won't want to tap that tree next spring. Now, as we've mentioned in past episodes, one of the exciting things about working in maple is the wide variety of tasks involved in the process. You might spend the morning in the woods with a chainsaw, the afternoon in the sugar house boiling sap, and the next day at the market selling syrup. That can be exciting, but it's also demanding because it requires a lot of specialized skills and knowledge. Because one day you might be repairing a pump, and the next day you could be in the kitchen making maple cream. Out of all the tasks on a maple farm, one of the most labor-intensive and critical jobs is installing and maintaining your sap collection system. Most farms use tubing collection systems now, and many use vacuum. Keeping these systems productive requires knowledge of tree physiology, the physics of vacuum, and an understanding of microbial activity inside the tubing. Yeah, and between the Arna and the E-Line forests at Cornell, we have about 14,000 trees tapped. And within those sugar bushes, we have areas dedicated to researching tubing treatments to keep tap holes productive, maintain sap quality, and move that sap quickly to the sugar house. This research is tricky because there are a lot of variables to account for in the woods, and because there's a lot of variability from one season to the next. So we put considerable effort into creating good experimental controls that give us valid data to compare to our experimental treatments. So with that in mind, let's start by talking about tap hole longevity. So in other words, keeping our tap holes functional for the longest period of time and maximizing productivity per tap. So to understand why this is important, it's first necessary to understand how sap flows and what causes tap hole closure. So we all know that sap flows on warm days and that we need that to be preceded by freezing nights. And what this does is creates a vacuum and pressure cycle in the tree. So when the tree freezes, it enters a vacuum state and draws new water up out of the ground into the trunk. And when it thaws, it creates pressure in the stem. But one of the side effects of that vacuum state is that sap that's in the tubing gets pulled back into the tap hole. Tubing is not a sterile environment. It includes microbes, such as yeast and bacteria. And when those get pulled back into the tap hole, they can clog the vascular tissue 
and reduce the productivity. Yeah, that's, you know, especially an issue this past season where we had that warmer weather where we had a lot more of that microbe activity and growth. So what are some different research projects that you've been doing at the Arnott Forest to kind of try to maximize that tap hole longevity? So we've looked at four main types of strategies to keep tap holes productive and also just keep the tubing productive. And those would fall into the categories of mechanical interventions, antimicrobial materials, sanitation treatments, and tubing replacement. So all of these things are tested using controlled trials. And the way we do that is we isolate the sap flow from the treated trees so that the sap flows into collection vessels where we can measure it before we dump it. And we do the experimental treatments. We collect the sap from the treated trees, but we also have really rigorous controls. And the controls we use for these trials are we use all old tubing to represent kind of the worst case scenario or the lower limit of production. And then we have upper limit controls, which consist of all brand new tubing to kind of represent the best case scenario. And that gives us something to control our experimental results against. We're doing kind of similar type of things at the E-Line Forest as well, where we're doing replicated research. So what are the, you know, what are some of the first actual, you know, research treatments that you have done? Yeah, so this research has been going on since about 2004 at Cornell. My predecessor, Steve Childs, started doing this research, and he began by just comparing new spouts and drops versus old spouts and drops. So what that means is he took old lateral lines, and some of them he just left the old spout and the old drop line on the tubing and tapped with that without cleaning it or anything. And then the experimental treatment was he replaced the drop line and also had a new spout and tapped trees with that new setup. And those tests were done for about 10 years, and what it showed over the long term was an 82% average increase in sap production in the lateral lines where the spout and drop had been replaced over the old system. So that's a really significant result. Yeah, that's huge. So going in and putting in a brand new spout, each year and potentially putting in new drop lines every couple of years or every year definitely pays off even for that material and time cost. Right. There's a big payback. And the reason this works is because when sap gets sucked back toward the tap hole and 5 16 tubing, it usually moves about 10 to 12 inches max. So if you have that last 30 inches of the tubing in the drop line new and not colonized by bacteria and yeast, then that sap that comes back through into the tap hole for that small section doesn't typically have the high microbial loads. So that's why it works, but that also kind of begs the question, what other methods could we use to achieve the same results? And one of the first things that was tested was bleaching the spout and drop. So in other words, removing the drop line and the spout, submerging it in bleach for sufficient period of time to kill the bacteria and yeast, and then rinsing it and reinstalling it in the woods. And what was found with those tests over a long period of time, you know, those tests were done year after year for about 10 years, was about a 72% increase in sap production using that method. That was over, you know, older drops and spouts that were used year after year, correct? Not compared to new tubing or tubing that was maybe only a year or two old. That's right. So it performs 72% better than just doing nothing and leaving your old tubing in the woods. Is there a application rate or different application rates that you guys tested? So the the tests were done with a concentration of 200 parts per million. 
Now, in the old days, we bleached our systems usually with a 600 parts per million solution, but that tends to leave some salty residue in the woods, and it's a little more than is necessary most of the time. The salty residue can attract squirrels or other wildlife pests that chew the tubing. And if there's enough residue left in the tubing, that can off-flavor syrup. So we go with the lower concentration of 200 parts per million and a contact time of 30 minutes. And the key is to actually get the, the sanitizing solution to cycle through the drop lines. If you just submerge them, then the, the solution doesn't necessarily contact all parts of the inside of the tubing. So it has to be either pumped through the tubing or you have to swirl the drop lines around in the sanitizing solution to make it work. Are you rinsing them afterward then? Yes, so they should be thoroughly rinsed with potable water after. And it's really best to do this right before the taps go back in the woods. So late fall, early winter is a good time to do this. Yeah, that makes sense. So there's not that time over the summer for all of that microbe activity to kind of colonize again within those taps or the drop lines, right? That's right. They're the most sterile right when they come out of the sanitizing solution. And then over time, they slowly get recolonized by bacteria and yeast. So we know that spout and drop replacement works. We know that bleach works. One of the other interventions that works is check valves. So check valves are pretty popular. They're not that expensive. And tests have shown pretty similar rate of return on those. Check valves yield about 72% increase in sap production over untreated tubing. So another proven strategy. So we know that check valves also work very well. And that, you know, 72% increase in production with check valve spouts that you guys found, that was in comparison to taps that had not been cleaned and were used year after year, right? Not in comparison to other brand new spouts. Right. Again, this was a comparison against old tubing with no treatment. Yeah. I found in a research project that I did this past season using drop lines that were about five years old. But when I used brand new check valve spouts and I used brand new spouts, the check valve spouts produced about 25% more sap per tap, having that check valve spout that prevented that backflow of sap. Yeah, those are good results. And it's important to remember with all of these that there's a lot of variability from season to season. One season might have an extreme amount of warm weather. Another season might have a lot of freeze-thaw cycles that are pushing the sap back and forth. Or your system might be maintained differently if you have a lot of vacuum leaks that can cause a lot of sap pullback. So these are averages over time. You might get good results one season and maybe not so good the next season. But overall, your performance should be better using one of these strategies. Yeah, that's some of the trickiness of the the research that we do. You know, we want to have those results after one year, but we really need two or three years oftentimes to get a good average of that variability of the weather patterns. And this year was was really a tricky year for us. It was such a weird season. You know, and I think sugar makers, you know, everybody knows it was a weird year, but research it just kind of exemplified all of that. Yeah, it was a tricky season. It was a high stress season for tubing for sure, because there were so many warm spells that increased bacterial growth in the tubing. So even in mid-March, there was a lot of bacterial load in our tubing. But that was a that made it a good year for testing what I'm focusing on, which is 3 sixteenths tubing. So the results we were just discussing relate to 5 sixteenths tubing, and we know pretty well what we should do with 5 sixteenths tubing now, but 3 sixteenths tubing is a whole other story. That's been problematic, and we haven't arrived at a good solution for that yet. Yeah, 3 sixteenths is 
it's kind of a, a love-hate relationship that I have with the 316s. It's great on that brand new on the gravity vacuum, but once it's used for a few years, you know, it just seems to plug up. And, you know, just for an example, in one of our sections where we've got, you know, a larger section where we have 1,200 taps that are on 316s, and we're doing a hybrid system with that. So we are utilizing vacuum, but, you know, it was better production than our 516 section the first year or two that it was out. But now we've had it out there for four years. So the, in year three and four, we've been gaining, you know, 25 to now like 35% better production in our 516 system than that 316. So that's like five gallons more sap per tap, which is, you know, this past season, that's like a pint of syrup. That's pretty substantial. Yeah, that drop in productivity is pretty extreme. And usually year two at the earliest, but typically years three and four and 316s tubing. And the, the issue is, is two different things. First, the smaller diameter of the tubing allows sap to be pulled back from a longer distance back into the tap hole. So even if you replaced your drop line and had 30 inches of brand new clean tubing between your tap hole and the lateral line, the sap can get sucked back much further than that. So that's not really going to prevent that that back suck issue into the tap hole. Now the other problem, which maybe is even more more important, is that the T's plug with yeast and bacteria. If you take a 3 inch T and look at the end of it, that opening or the aperture is really, really small. So it doesn't take much biofilm to start plugging that T. By biofilm, you mean that layer of microbes, mostly yeast, right, that are growing around that T? Yeah, so the, the yeast and bacteria kind of form a slime on the inside surface, and pretty soon it blocks the whole opening. And it's a little deceiving because if you you think you're experiencing plug teas during the season, but then go harvest one of those teas or cut it out of the line in the summer. When that biofilm dries up, it shrinks down substantially. You might not even see it inside of the tea, and you might wonder why your tea clogged. But if you soak it in water, that biofilm rehydrates, and you'll quickly see that it, it plugs the entire opening. Yeah, it's pretty surprising how much that can really plug up that tubing so it restricts that flow in there. And you can tell oftentimes later in the season of your 316s tubing that's, you know, three, four years old, that the flow going through the tube network is just so much slower than it is at the beginning of the season. Yeah, for sure. So that's for that reason, a lot of people have given up on 316s tubing. But we are fearless researchers and we persist. And so this season we tested a variety of new strategies to try to solve this problem. And those included antimicrobial fittings, larger diameter fittings, and sanitation treatments using calcium bleach. So I'll kind of walk through my results sequentially here and explain what worked and what didn't. So as with all our studies, we started by establishing our controls. Our worst case scenario, we went with all old 316th tubing. We did put new spouts in the tubing because I can't imagine the worst case being just not even replacing the spouts. So we did that as a minimum. But with that control, we only got 21 gallons of sap per tap on average. Now on the other end, we had an all new system. So it was all new 316th tubing. Everything about it was new. And that system yielded 30 gallons per tap. So our lower limit was 21 gallons of sap and our upper limit was 30 gallons of sap per tap total yield. The tests that we did this year, the experimental treatments, were all things that we could do to older tubing 
to try to make it perform close to or even better than the brand new tubing system. So I tried three different approaches this year. One was antimicrobial tees. The next was larger diameter tees. And the last was a sanitation treatment with the calcium bleach. So my best result was actually using two-year-old quarter-inch antimicrobial tees. So these were tees that I bought online. They're not custom-made for maple, but they do fit in maple tubing. Now, although 3 tubing is a little bit smaller than the quarter-inch fittings, I was able to make them fit using flex tubing, and then I made a little expander so it looked like a little bullet ground down to a point on both ends, and I just squeezed that into the opening in the tubing, wet the tees, and I was able to slide them right in. So these are tees that I installed last year. This was their second year in the woods, so they were dirty. And they actually produced more sap than brand new 3 tubing. We got 36 gallons per tap on average. So that's 20% more than the new 3 system. Wow. That larger diameter, especially this in a warmer season this year, definitely helped prevent that plugging. And then how much do you think the antimicrobial properties of those larger tees was effective over just a regular larger tee? Well, I had a treatment to compare with directly. So I also had a two-year-old quarter-inch tee that did not have an antimicrobial treatment on it. And that was actually one of the worst performers. It got 20% less sap per tap than the all-new system. So in that treatment, we only got 24 gallons of sap per tap on average. So that would suggest that the antimicrobial treatment plays a significant role in maintaining the productivity of these trees. Yeah, that's pretty interesting to, to see that that plays into it. How about the 316th antimicrobial teas? How did that compare? So this is a slightly older test. This is the third year that I've had these same 316th inch antimicrobial teas in the woods, and they did slightly better than the all-new system as well. So they got 10% more sap than the all-new 316th control. And they yielded about 33 gallons per tap on average. It's hard to tell, you know, with these kind of small-scale trials, whether that's statistically significant, but it looks like that this antimicrobial treatment on the plastic is effective. Yeah. Do you think it's worth the extra work to try to put those larger quarter-inch tees on or to stick with the antimicrobial 316th tees? Well, it certainly took more effort to get the quarter-inch tees into the woods. So I think it would depend on the nature of someone's operation. So if you had a small set of woods, you wanted maximum productivity, and you had enough time to go replace all your tees and put the extra effort in, it would probably make sense. But on a larger scale, you just have to plan for a lot of time because it is tricky. And especially if you're not using the flex tubing, if you have a more rigid style tubing, those quarter inch tees don't tend to hang on very well. I want to clarify, was this gravity or was this with an artificial vacuum pump? These tests were all done under vacuum. So what I was trying to isolate was simply the plugging issue. So you would have different performance if this was a gravity system but I think it still is an accurate test of how effective we were at preventing plugging in the tees. One question I have for you, Aaron, is you mentioned that you had 34 gallons of sap per tap, which to me, you know, if, as a maple producer, that sounds like, you know, great. Like you're getting close to a gallon of syrup per tap. So how realistic is that number in a real world 
situation compared to these research trials? How does that transition into a, an application? Yeah, so these research results should only be compared against the controls and the other treatments. The way we have these trials set up with our vacuum collection canisters provides a bit of an artificial boost in vacuum to the tap holes, and we tend to get higher production from our experimental and our control trees than we would in a typical sugar bush environment. So yeah, take those numbers with a grain of salt for sure. That's not a realistic sugar bush condition, but it is a well-controlled trial. All right. I was getting a little jealous that you guys were getting that much per tap down there at the Arna. But there's potential, <laughs> I guess, right? That's right. Maybe we should put these boosters in everywhere. Yeah. Although I wouldn't really recommend that. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the final thing I tested with 3 sixteenths was calcium bleach at different concentrations. We've tested this before with 200 parts per million solution. So I wanted to just try some, some higher concentrations. I tried 400 parts per million and I tried 600 parts per million just to see if there was any comparative difference. In order to tease out the difference between those, I used a really minimal treatment. So I pumped the solution into the lateral lines and treated the whole lateral line and only left it there for 30 minutes. Realistically, you could leave it in a lot longer than that and the bleach would keep working until all of the molecules were neutralized. But in general, you'd want to leave it in longer and the dirtier your tubing, the higher concentration you'd want to go with. But with those two concentrations and even that really minimal amount of contact time, I did get some positive results. So the 600 parts per million came in at 28 gallons per tap, and the 400 parts per million came in at 31 gallons per tap. Those results don't really jive with my expectations. So I think just the really short contact time didn't really reveal the results that I was looking for. And you did that in the fall or was that in the spring? I did this in the winter during tapping time. So again, this is like worst case scenario where if you're a maple producer and you thought last minute, oh, I should do something to my 316th tubing, but I need to start tapping. I was kind of testing that scenario where you're going out the same day, filling up your lateral lines and then coming back through and draining them and tapping them. It's not a method I would recommend. The backpack sprayer that I used to pump the cleaning solution into the lines was unwieldy in three feet of snow with snowshoes mm. and walking through the brush. So it was a tricky method. It was, it was a real world trial, <laughs> we'll say. But there are different ways that bleach could be pumped through the system that are much simpler. And we've done workshops on that. I would say it's an effective method, but designing your own way of doing it that works for you is really important. Yeah, that can be, it could be a lot of extra work and that sometimes that reward won't pay back. Depends on the application, I guess. That's right. So these are all my preliminary results for antimicrobial fittings. We've only done, done this for two or three years. We'll continue doing this for a few more years. Results so far look good, but it's important to get a lot of years of data before we draw any strong conclusions. So that's what we have going on at the RNAP Forest. How about you, Adam? What do you have for treatments in the woods at the E-Line? Yeah, so along the same lines, you know, I also don't want to totally put to bed the 316s. I think there's still some merit to it. And where I th see the most merit is in that gravity application where we can gain you know, natural vacuum by just dropping the weight of that sap in a vacuum tight system. So you know, you've obviously done the work with the larger fittings and the antimicrobial fittings. So that's all been great. But we've actually started playing with the possibility of looking at quarter inch tubing. 
Obviously, that 3 sixteenths is smaller, and that smaller diameter allows that capillary action to form. But if we use quarter-inch tubing, then maybe it won't plug up as much, but can still gain some of that capillary action. Right. We're trying to get that balancing act just right between being small enough to get capillary action, but being big enough to not plug the T's. Yeah, so we started this a couple years ago. We did some initial studies and found that with enough elevation drop, we were able to achieve vacuum. Depending on the number of cheese, we weren't quite as high as the 3 sixteenths, but it was definitely performing better than 5 sixteenths. This year, I bumped up that research a little bit more with funding from the Northern New York Ag Development Program. So did you find any trends this year in your results? Yeah, so I replicated with some lateral lines that had 18 trees per lateral line, 30 trees per lateral line, and was finding that that quarter inch was as effective almost as 3 sixteenths or more effective. And that could be maybe because of the warmer weather, but it's all kind of preliminary at this point. So we're going to need another year or two of data to really come to some solid conclusions. But there's some really promising results with the quarter inch. And it's going to be interesting to see, you know, what does it do in year three now? Next year, we'll have some three-year-old tubing out there. Does it drop off like the 3 sixteenths tubing or is it going to outpace the 3 sixteenths tubing? but be better in a gravity application than 5 sixteenths. Yeah, one of the things that's interesting to me about this is the idea that we're generating options, right? It's tempting to say, oh, 3 sixteenths is better than 5 sixteenths or vice versa. But really, there's a whole range of scenarios that people can encounter in the woods. There is an infinite variety of setups that people can have in their forest. So having many viable options is really helpful. And Looking back at the history of tubing tests, there have actually been tests to try to generate natural vacuum on 5 sixteenths tubing, which works just fine. It just takes a lot of trees per lateral, something like 80 to 90 trees per lateral. For most people, that doesn't make a lot of sense, but there might be a sugar bush in which it does make sense, or a sugar maker for whom that matches the resources they have available. So if we can find viable strategies with 3 sixteenths, quarter inch, and 5 sixteenths, those are all useful potentially. Yeah, it is. It's, you know, each sugaring operation is set up differently. You know, if you only have a couple hundred trees or even a thousand trees and you don't want to invest in that vacuum pump, be able to have some of these smaller diameters that still create some of their own vacuum and increase production is very beneficial. But, you know, on the flip side, if you've got flat land with 50,000 taps, you know, five sixteenths is probably the best option to stick with. But It's all kinds of options that we want to provide for the maple producer for their specific application. That's right. And we'll keep testing these strategies for multiple years so that we have a really solid data set that maple producers can look at and base their decisions on sound data rather than guesswork. Yeah, definitely. It's a fun part of our job that we get to provide this information for maple producers. Well, Aaron, that's a lot of interesting research results and There's obviously a lot more in the future to see, and we're excited to continue providing new updates to our Maple audience. But for now, I think we've covered quite a bit. Before we go, we'd like to thank our sponsors. So this research was done with sponsorship from the New York Department of Agriculture and Markets, the ACER Access and Development Grant through the USDA Agricultural Marketing Service, and also the Northern New York Ag Development Program. Join us next time on Sweet Talk, All Things Maple, with Adam and Aaron. Thank you for joining us for Sweet Talk, All Things Maple, with Aaron and Adam. 
Sweet Talk is produced by the Cornell Mabel Program and is made possible from funding from the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture. All music was obtained from Blue Dot Sessions. For more information on all things maple, visit cornellmaple.com. Join us next time for more Maple Sweet Talk. Have a sweet day.